Las Vegas, famous, fabulous playground of the West. A wide open town that never goes to sleep. Vegas, Vegas, baby, Vegas! You're either in or you're out, right now. My best mates are going to Las Vegas this weekend. I'm told it's incredible. Las Vegas, here we go! Pack your bags and get ready for a different kind of Vegas experience with someone who knows Vegas inside and out. You're listening to Vegas Never Sleeps with Stephen Maggi. Welcome to Vegas Never Sleeps, an audio postcard from the fabulous Las Vegas Strip. I'm Stephen Maggi, and this week we look at the Vegas of the past and Vegas today. Today, when we think of Las Vegas entertainment, we think of residencies, from Celine Dion and Elton John to Lady Gaga and Aerosmith. But who started all this? Well, it goes back to Elvis Presley. Today, you'll meet Richard Zoglin, the author of a great new book, Elvis in Vegas, who talks about how Elvis reinvented the Las Vegas show. Later, you'll meet the owner of an out-of-the-way barbecue place that is taking the town by storm. All that and a visit with our regulars. Up first, Scott Robin of VitalVegas.com explains that it's becoming harder for innovators to change the Vegas landscape. Wizard of Odds, Michael Shackelford, last week gave advice for the professional gambler in Vegas. Today, Michael talks about the best games for a novice. Finally, in his last weekly visit, America's first master sommelier, Eddie Osterlin, teaches us the best way to go wine tasting. Oh, boy. <laughs> Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. This is my first uh, live appearance in nine years. Thank you. I appeared dead before, but this is the first live one. Oh, well, bless my soul, what's wrong with me? I met you like a man on a fuzzy tree. My friends say I'm acting a while as a bug. I'm in love. I'm all shook up. Las Vegas and Elvis Presley. The names go together. There's no question about it. And they really helped each other a lot. There's a fantastic book about it. It's called Elvis in Vegas, How the King Reinvented the Las Vegas Show by the great author Richard Zoglin, who writes for Time Magazine and also wrote a fantastic book about Bob Hope. Richard, it really was a case that uh, Elvis really needed Vegas at that point in his career. And really, as it turns out, Vegas sort of needed him. Yeah, the 1960s were uh, kind of a tough time for Elvis. He had uh, not done any live performing through the entire 1960s, except for a couple of uh, benefit performances in 1961. Colonel Parker, his manager, just decided he would be making movies and recording. And uh, as the rock world was changing, the Beatles came along and everything, uh, Elvis was really nowhere. He was considered sort of over the hill. The movies were getting worse. The the songs, his songs were not making the the charts anymore. And he was really looking for a reinvention and a a restart of his career. It kind of started with the 1968 uh, comeback special on NBC in December 1968, which sort of reintroduced... Elvis to the American public, and then uh, in the summer of 69, uh, the colonel decided that he would return to live performing and that they would do it in Las Vegas. You know, and the sad part is that people don't remember that, really how great it is. That's why I think this book is so great. Eddie Murphy used to do a comedy bit 
and it was very funny. It was an impression of Elvis. He said how much he loved Elvis. And then when he gets old and fat, and people associated that with Las Vegas. But in reality, that was a great time in Elvis's career. Absolutely. Uh, that 1969 comeback show in Vegas, he was really at his peak as a live performer. He was trim. He was energetic. He was excited to be back in front of his fans again. He was so, he was so frustrated not being able to perform live uh, for those last few years. And, so, and then he went out and created an entire show from scratch, picked a, a backup band, put together the, the set he was going to do, and uh, he, he was just as good as he ever was. And I, I, I want people to remember that. Yes, later on in Vegas, the shows got more bombastic and uh, Elvis uh, gained weight. And people sort of identify that, that image of him, the overweight Elvis in the white jumpsuit with Vegas. But at the beginning, I want to remind people uh, he was never better and a dynamic, powerful stage performer. Yeah, and what was cool about that, too, was he was at really at a high point in his career. Vegas, before that, was kind of known as a place where you kind of went when your career was at the end. Now, the Rat Pack were a big deal then, but right. a completely they, they didn't take it seriously. They were joking around. He did take it seriously. That show was well done. Right. And, yes, you're right. Vegas was, uh, Vegas was going through its own changes in the 60s or having its own troubles. Uh, At the beginning of the 60s with Sinatra and the Rat Pack, Vegas was certainly the the hottest place for live entertainment uh, in America. And everybody was there, all the nightclub singers, all the comedians, uh, the dancers. uh, But as the 60s went on and the the music scene started to change, the Beatles, the the counterculture uh, revolution, uh, the suddenly Vegas was not so cool anymore and the younger generation was not coming to Las Vegas and the rock groups were not playing Las Vegas so Elvis coming there was a a big deal because he he kind of brought rock and roll onto the big stage in Vegas really for the first time uh, there had been a there had been some rock and rhythm and blues uh, people who had done Vegas uh, during the 60s but mostly in the lounges but Elvis showed that a big rock concert-like show could work on the big showroom stage. It was a different kind of Vegas show. It was not the old sort of more intimate nightclub-style show that Sinatra and that gang did. It was a big show in a big showroom, twice as big as any other in Las Vegas, at the brand-new International Hotel. And so I think it sort of was the beginning of a new chapter in Vegas entertainment. Everybody talks about Vegas residencies. Lady Gaga now is a big thing. Before that, of course, Celine Dion. He was the guy that started this, though, right? Because people used to look forward to it and always sold out. Yeah, right. His show, first of all, was four weeks, seven nights a week, two shows a night, not a single night off. Who does that anymore? Uh, but, But, you know, for four weeks to sell out every show, he was... Uh, it was the biggest show uh, that Vegas had ever seen, and it showed. Ve- it also brought in a different kind of audience. It was more uh, people from a, a more middle American audience, people who hadn't necessarily been to Vegas before. They came to Vegas for Elvis, and he made the Vegas show an event, and also a, a, an event for the whole family. I mean, for a for a much broader audience, not the sort of traditional, sophisticated nightclub crowd. So that was the audience that Vegas would eventually discover. It took him a couple of decades, but when Vegas went through its own reinvention later on with the, the new hotels and the Cirque du Soleil shows, and then, you're right, the new residencies, starting with Celine Dion, 
those were, I think, really Elvis was the first of those kind of shows. And uh, those shows, of course, much bigger productions and in big, big auditoriums, uh, big showrooms. Uh, but Vegas, uh, but Elvis was the first one to really do that kind of show in Vegas. More with Richard Zoglin, author of Elvis in Vegas, How the King Reinvented the Las Vegas Show, in just a few moments. Time now for your Vegas insider, Scott Robin of VitalVegas.com. Today, Scott and I look at the bureaucratic side of today's Vegas. I know when Howard Hughes bought up stuff, there was this feeling that, uh-oh, it's going to be all bureaucracy now. And then to a certain extent, it was. But guy, there were guys like Steve Wynn, you know, that managed to do some things and went through some changes. Is it just set up in such a way that those people simply can't get into it anymore? Well, I, I think there's an opportunity, but gambling is, is a gamble, to be honest. To, to open a casino, to get into the gaming business in Las Vegas, it's... It's tricky, and you have to know what you, you're doing. You have to have a lot of resources behind you. Uh, some people kind of put their toe in, but then they don't, they don't really follow through. The, the uh, folks that bought the Fountain Blue, they're looking at the, this building, and it's going to be really expensive to do. They're not, they're not doing much of anything. So there are people that have shown interest. Could be, could be something great, but they can get stymied as well. So it's, a, it's really a mixed bag. And those, those folks that are kind of, you know, the bold thinkers, there's not as many of those. They're, they're more uh, administrators and they're more bookkeepers and they're more analysts and they're more on the, on the IT information database driven side. Uh, that's been an evolution Vegas uh, pretty much since uh, the uh, Gary Loveman came in with Caesars Entertainment. It wasn't Caesars wow. Entertainment at the time, but he came in. He was real big on loyalty clubs, and he was real big on, uh, uh, you know, mining the data and figuring out your customer and their and their uh, all their their different gaming habits and their travel habits. And he really started that process of just analyzing all the data and being data driven, database driven. So that's that's the current Vegas. Uh, there's no two ways around it. You got to hope there's people with vision in that mix as well. Scott will be back again next week. Remember to check out VitalVegas.com every day to know the inside Vegas news first. More with Richard Zoglin, author of Elvis in Vegas, How the King Reinvented the Las Vegas Show, in just a few moments. You're listening to Vegas Never Sleeps with Stephen Mangie, coast to coast on the BizTalk Radio Network. You're listening to Vegas Never Sleeps with Stephen Maggi. You are listening to Richard Zoglin, author of Elvis in Vegas, How the King Reinvented the Las Vegas Show. And he may be the savior of Las Vegas because as gambling has taken over all over the country... To compete, Vegas had to do it differently, and you can see by some of the arenas they're building, Richard, uh, yeah. this whole idea of what Elvis did, bringing people in for the show, has kind of taken over. Right. And making, making the show an event, you know, uh, Elvis's show, he, he 
after after that uh, comeback uh, engagement in 1969, the International Hotel signed into a five-year contract, the International, which later became the Hilton, and he would come back every six months for four weeks at a time. There would be the summer engagement and the winter engagement, and people, it was the first time really somebody had a regular kind of schedule in Vegas, so people knew they would plan their trips around Elvis. And I think that is kind of what the, the new residencies are now. People come uh, f- for uh, Lady Gaga or for, you know, Sting or Aerosmith or whoever. They, yeah. they know, they, they're, you know, back in the old days, in the early 60s, you'd, in the 50s and 60s, you'd come to Vegas and just whoever was playing. You know, there were so many people, you know, it was just right. so packed with stars. You'd just come, and if uh, Sinatra was there, fine. If he wasn't, you'd go see Sammy or Tony Bennett or Buddy Hackett. Uh, but later on, when the, the stars sort of thinned out, and, of course, in the 80s and 90s, the, the, the headliners kind of went away or, or were certainly in eclipse compared to the Cirque du Soleil spectacular kind of shows and the Siegfried and Roy's. But now that they're coming back, um, there are fewer of them, but they're more of an event. And so people are kind of looking to, uh, to the particular show that they want to see, and that's what they're organizing their trip to Vegas around. Yeah, and I see Lady Gaga getting thousands of dollars for some of these seats, Aerosmith as well. One wonders what Elvis would have got had this been in, in this economy. Yeah, back then uh, in 69, he got $15 uh, for a ticket, <laughs> uh, which inflation-wise, it was, that, was, that was pretty high back then because Vegas had traditionally, of course, charged very little for the shows. The whole idea was to get people into the shows so they'd stay and, and gamble in the casinos, and that's where the hotels made their money, and that's how they could pay the top salaries in the country. Elvis was, uh, But Elvis's show was reputedly the first one to actually make money on its own because it was a huge showroom compared to the others in Vegas. And so uh, they didn't need necessarily the big gamblers. They just wanted people. It was it was a volume <laughs> business. So uh, Elvis kind of turned things in a, in a different direction, turned the business model around. And again, I think it's fantastic that you kind of change people's ideas about Elvis because in that time, you were mentioning, I forget how many, two, was it two shows a night, all those, yeah. seven days a week. He had to be in incredible shape to do that. Right. And he had a great, you know, backup group. And he did this all on his own. He, here he, he, a guy who hadn't performed for most of a decade, and he's going into Las Vegas, creating a Las Vegas show. He didn't really have a director or a producer with any hands-on involvement. He just, you know, with a couple of friends, he just decided to he'd go out and pick. He chose a backup band. He uh, hired James Burton, one of the top guitarists. And they, together they picked the rest of the backup band. Then he wanted not one but two backup singing groups, male and female, a male gospel group and a, um, uh, a female soul group, the Sweet Inspirations. And then, plus an orchestra, the, the, you know, the regular house orchestra, which was bigger than usual, more than 40 people. And so there were like 60 musicians on stage. It was just a huge, a huge show for Vegas. And this was all Elvis is doing. The colonel... Colonel Parker, originally, when he thought of bringing Elvis into Vegas, he was thinking of a kind of traditional Vegas show with showgirls around him and dance numbers. And, and Elvis said, no, this is what I want to do. He had in mind this, uh, a, a big rock concert-like show for the big showroom. 
And he also was kind of expanding his music. For a while there, he was in those movies, and they're doing the songs specifically written for the movies and so forth. Sure. Now he's doing In the Ghetto and some of those other songs right. that were pretty uh, different for him at that point. Sure. He, yeah, he was starting to record. That was uh, There was a recording session in Memphis the previous January where he recorded. It was his probably the most important recording session of his career. He had not been doing, you know, his, his songs of the 60s were not, uh, you know, not much. They were kind of very lightweight pop movie songs and a few other things, and they weren't uh, even making the charts anymore. So he goes to Memphis in January, and he records songs like, with a whole new group of songwriters and, a, and um, a backup musicians, and he records In the Ghetto, which was a song written uh, by Mac Davis, interestingly enough, and he records Suspicious Minds, and he records Kentucky Rain, and these were the kind of big emotional ballads that, became uh, a fixture in his repertoire. He introduced Suspicious Minds he had recorded in January, but he had not released the record. The, he, that was the kind of climax of his show in Vegas, a seven-minute version of Suspicious Minds, uh, with Elvis just all over the stage, uh, knocking himself out, sweating, out of breath. And that, uh, but nobody had heard that song before. That's where he introduced the song. And they released it right at the end of his Vegas engagement, and it became his first number one hit in seven years. It's incredible. Let's talk about his early days, because we can't forget that. He went to Vegas in the 50s, and it didn't work. What happened? Yeah. Well, the reason I, I was surprised to find that out, right at the beginning, I started writing this book as a kind of a book about Vegas' golden age of entertainment. And I found out that Elvis had such a long connection with Vegas that I didn't really know about. Starting in 1956, when he was just coming up, uh, he had one hit, uh, hit uh, number on the radio, a Heartbreak Hotel. Hadn't even done the Ed Sullivan show yet, but he was starting to get a lot of attention on TV. And uh, the colonel decided to put him into a Las Vegas show in, 19, in 1956 at the New Frontier Hotel on a bill with Freddie Martin's orchestra and Shecky Green, of all things. Well, uh, this was not a kind of show that the you know the Vegas crowd in 1956 had any you know idea what it was. They just see this kid shaking his hips from Memphis, and he didn't do very well. The reviews were very mixed, and um, it was not a success. But Elvis loved Vegas. First of all, he uh, he discovered uh, a song there. He went to see a, a lounge group called Freddie Bell and the Bell Boys, who were doing a rock kind of version of Big Mama Thornton's song, Hound Dog. And uh, Elvis loved it and put it in his own show, and, uh, and that's when he uh, recorded Down Dog, and that became his signature hit. And Elvis loved Vegas. He, he, uh, he would come back there often. It was like his favorite getaway. So all through the 60s, he was in and out of Vegas, seeing shows, picking up showgirls, just uh, having fun. He made Viva Las Vegas there, of course, in 63. He, went, he married Priscilla there in 67. And so when it came time to return to live performing, uh, Vegas may have been an odd choice to some people, uh, the rock and roll crowd, but to Elvis, he was very comfortable there. More with Time Magazine's Richard Zoglin, author of Elvis in Vegas, How the King Reinvented the Las Vegas Show. You are listening to Vegas Never Sleeps with Stephen Maggi, nationwide on the BizTalk Radio Network. Hey, hey, what do you say? This is Paul Shortino from Raiding the Rock Vault, and you're listening to Vegas Never Sleeps with Stephen Maggi. Let's go to Vegas, baby. 
Welcome back to Vegas Never Sleeps with Stephen Maggi. Today's show is brought to you in part by the Orleans Hotel and Casino, offering wonderful rooms, great restaurants, free parking, and more. You are listening to the author of Elvis in Vegas, How the King Reinvented the Las Vegas Show, Richard Zoglin. New record that just came out, uh, ladies and gentlemen, I hope you like it. Uh, it's called Suspicious Minds. We're caught in a trap. And fittingly, if you go to a Vegas Golden Knights game or whatever, the music tends to be kind of a hip-hop range and dance music and stuff, but there's nothing like the song Viva Las Vegas. It's almost the official song of Vegas. Yeah, I know. Uh, that was the, you know, that became the iconic uh, Vegas film. Uh, I'm, you know, I don't think it's a great film by any means, but that song just sort of perfectly captured the spirit of Vegas. The movie is good because uh, as a a travelogue of Vegas in the 60s, you get a good (laughs) glimpse of Vegas in 1963. You know, lots of scenes of the strip and the the showgirls and everything. It is... uh, a fun movie to watch and a real time capsule. Yeah, and Anne Margaret's always a pleasure to see. Oh yeah, <laughs> and that was the first time he had had in his movie a real co-star who really held his own, held her own with him, uh, and even upstaged him a little bit. The Colonel was always uh, was very afraid that she was going to sort of steal a show from Elvis. But One- it's a great, uh, great performance by Anne. One last thing about the book, Elvis in yeah. Vegas. It's great for people to want to hear about Vegas. I mean, I got I was fascinated by just on the subject of comedians. And you're talking about when people like Bob Newhart, who at the time was considered extremely cool, had to yeah. change his act a little, which really kind of tells you about Vegas prior to Elvis's appearance. Yeah, I did. I really think the book does two things. It's a story of Elvis and and his relationship with Vegas, and it's a story of Vegas and how it it's it's heyday years and how it was changing. And how, how, what a, a great magnet it was for all the performers. As, I, as you say, uh, the, you think of the Vegas comedians, the, the, the traditional uh, lounge comedians, the Don Rickles and Checky Greens, and then you think of the Jack Carters, the sort of one-liner guys. And then, but then I, 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 I saw almost every comedian played Vegas, Bob Newhart and Shelley Berman, guys who were sort of the new wave back then, who were considered more cerebral kind of comedians, not typical uh, Vegas comedians. Even Woody Allen played Vegas uh, near the end of the 60s at uh, Caesars Palace. Uh, Woody, who actually, uh, you know, enjoyed doing Vegas, so even though he told me he was uh, always disappointed he could never fill up the auditor- the, the showroom, and his first... Uh, gig at, at Caesar's Palace when it was done he, he was he felt so bad that he couldn't quite sell out the show he offered to give back some of his salary which has to be a Vegas first <laughs> exactly well you know Vegas is sort of an entertainment standard if you if you think about it. I mean like Richard Pryor one of the greatest comedians to ever live and he said himself it was a place where he never really was able to truly be himself so it's one of those places where it's one of those check marks of being a super duper star yeah you know, guys like Richard Pryor and, and George Carlin, who were really the new generation of comedians in the late 60s, and they had no sort of empathy with Las Vegas, but they still played it because that was the place you had to play. That was a, a sign of success. Uh, so, you know, even they they didn't feel uh, comfortable there, they did Las Vegas, and then they they kind of departed Las Vegas because that's when things started to change. 
college concerts and and other arena shows be, were becoming the the venue for comedians like that. Absolutely. And then I guess HBO came the final thing. Of oh that. sure, yeah. yeah. And so then you know Vegas, uh, you know Vegas was changing, and then the, the whole culture was changing. This is a fantastic book. It's Elvis in Vegas, How the King Reinvented the Las Vegas Show by Richard Zoglin, who's a great author. Your book on Bob Hope I absolutely loved. Uh, oh, thank you. And uh, where can we get the book, Richard? I assume everywhere. Sure, all the bookstores on Amazon uh, and, uh, yeah, pretty it, much everywhere. There's an audio book and a Kindle and all that. And do you have, do you have a website, too? I do, richardzoglin.com. Easy to find. We will go there. Richard, thank you so much. Really appreciate okay. talking with you today. Great to be with you. Thanks a lot. Thank you. When you come to Las Vegas, it's always about fine dining. You can get anything you want here. But the one question area we found over our first few years on the air is barbecue. Your Vegas insider, Scott Robin of VitalVegas.com, says, you know, it's kind of hard. There's a couple places. Some are better than others, but there's really nothing that stands out. By accident, I found a place on the side road. You've got to find it yourself. Uh, it's just that you look across the strip there. It's called Jesse Ray's Barbecue, and with us is the owner, Mike Ross. Mike, what a great idea. Are people coming from everywhere for this? Because just the smell of this will draw you within a couple of blocks. <laughs> yeah, we do get a pretty diverse crowd as far as uh, tourism goes and locals and the working community that's around us being in a residential area. And, you know, I've noticed, too, you have excellent social media. That's where I kind of, I had heard about it, and I thought, wow, they always have good stuff on. And then I'm driving by. I was looking, actually, for Carl's Jr. <laughs> that I thought was out here. Was it? I go, hey, that one, I'll go try it. Oh, my God, great stop. Uh, uh, is social media a big part of trying to get the word out? We are in a very residential area. There is zero foot traffic in here. And past 5 o'clock, there's absolutely no reason to be in this area because all the businesses are closed. So social media is literally all we have, and that's how I drive all of the business that, we've, that we get. Um, we get to coast a little bit because of our social media has gotten really, well, got really good and really good results for us. But um, there's just no foot traffic, so that's the only kind of traffic that I can generate is through social media. So I had to have my social media succeed or I wasn't going to succeed. Let's talk about the great food here, and there really is some great food. The one thing I always judge a barbecue restaurant by is the brisket. And my gosh, this is the stuff you get like in the middle of Texas where it's got the nice little ring around it and the taste. Is that something uh, that was like one of the first things on your mind when you decided to open this thing? Is I will I will give up a one secret not secret but it is we do a Central Texas style brisket salt and pepper very very simple rub um, so that maybe that's why it's reminiscent of that um, as far as the smoke the, the rings and everything you know that's just using your smoker correctly um, if you if you don't see that I think on a lot of barbecue they may you know there, there may be an issue with the smoking process you know that's usually good smoke penetration and um, brisket is a tough meat. Um, it's a really tough meat to cook, and it took me a long time. I think um, even people that have been coming to me for the last four years will definitely notice a uh, an increase on the quality of my brisket throughout those four years and just really, really hammering it down and practicing over and over every single day, perfecting it. And I'm still perfecting it to this day. Well, yeah, and I get an idea. This is sort of an art form because smoking is a whole other item. It's not just throwing something on the grill. It looks ready and so forth, right? It's one of those things where... It's, I mean, you start early, it's slow. 
So I, I, it, I would definitely agree with you as far as the art farm goes. Um, I think even more, it's a, more of a scientific process than anything. And um, if you don't know the certain benchmarks, there's a lot of numbers, um, a lot of certain internal temperatures that things happen at that you really need to look for and uh, be able to recognize. And um, so knowing all that first and foremost and, you know, what different types of combustion, what kind of smoke molecules they get, um, what, um, what internal degrees does fat start to melt, you know, when does smoke penetration happen at the best times, you know, these are all things that you, that you have to look at and time and adjust accordingly in your smoke. And once you get all that stuff down, you know, it becomes a pretty, pretty good process. And what about the wood? Is it a particular type of wood you need? So um, we came up with this whole thing that we're trying to come up with Vegas's own uh, barbecue style. So um, we call it Las Vegas style barbecue. And um, it's just a little fun little gimmick that we came up with and we kind of live by here. Um, try to keep barbecue spontaneous and sexy just like Las Vegas is, right? So um, our wood, we change every single week. So just like uh, people that come here once a year, it's going to be completely different every time, you know? So every time that you come to Jesse Ray's, you'll have a different subtle nuance, but you know, we same great food, but you'll have a subtle nuance that's going to be a little bit different. So um, whether it's, you know, the, the ratios in the rub or the different wood combinations that we smoke with, you know, we're, uh, my wife, who Jesse Ray is, is uh, we're both born and raised here in Las Vegas. We're not really bound by any one regional style of barbecue or wood or anything, so might as well use them all, right? More with Mike Ross, owner of Jesse Ray's Barbecue, in just a few moments. Time now for Michael Shackelford, also known as the Wizard of Odds. Michael is a statistician and an expert in gaming odds and probabilities. I'm going to go down to Vegas, spend a weekend down there. You know, I'm just going to play. I'm, I'm a regular guy. What's my best odds? Because I know things like Keno and a lot of slot machines, you can win a lot of money, but the odds are really difficult. Yeah, both those games, slot machines and Keno, are absolutely terrible, especially slots. I think that in terms of money loss per hour, slots are the worst thing you could possibly play. So for the recreational gambler who doesn't want to do a ton of work, I, rec I recommend blackjack and craps, and in some cases, video poker. The Wizard will be back again next week. More with Mike Ross, owner of Jesse Ray's Barbecue, in just a few moments. You're listening to Vegas Never Sleeps with Stephen Maggi, coast to coast on the BizTalk Radio Network. Let's return to Vegas Never Sleeps with Stephen Maggi. You are listening to the owner of Jesse Ray's Barbecue, Mike Ross. So let's tell people, what are the things you recommend on the menu? Like if you're a first timer, what do you recommend? And, and you do do takeout, I assume, where they can take it back to the hotel as well. Of course. So yeah, we, um, we're on every single delivery platform there is. Um, I, I'm pretty sure maybe I'm missing a few, but you know, Grubhub, Uber Eats, Postmates, all of that. So you can get it all there. You can come here, pick it up, and take it to wherever you want, or um, you, we can we can take it to you either way. Um, and as far as recommendations, so uh, we have one item which is my favorite thing to do. It's called the Fortress. Um, it's definitely shareable by two or three people. Um, full rack of ribs, and we kind of cook it in this crown, and we stuff it with 
just macaroni and cheese and fries and meat and just pile it on. It's a really, really cool dish. Um, uh, we have a thing called Maniac Fries, which is our number one seller on the entire menu. Yeah, they're phenomenal. Um, but so, so we layer fries and mac and cheese. You get your choice of brisket, pork, or so, uh, chicken. And then we put hot links on top of that. We have a sauce in the kitchen called the Vegas sauce, um, which is only in the kitchen. We put a little bit of that on top of it, and then we put a little bit of our white sauce, our Alabama-style uh, white barbecue sauce on top. Really, really great dish. Um, people love that, and it's definitely one of the things that bring people here. And you talk about the success of social media. Social media That is definitely something that's helped us out. You know, It's very Instagram-worthy. <laughs> you talk about the fortress. That must have some association with the Vegas Golden Knights. We like to do as much as we can for the community. Um, we're big Golden Knight fans, um, so if they ever ask us to do anything, well, we would do it, but nothing official. Well, finally, let's talk about how you got there. You said the, the restaurant's named after your wife. Was this something the two of you have been thinking about for a while? Where's your background? How did you get here? All right, yeah, so the Jessie Ray is my wife. She's actually pictured on our logo, uh, much to her dismay, but that's her. <laughs> and um, so we started out in the competitive barbecue world doing uh, professional competitions around the West. Um, and we got good, and our sauce was doing well in those separate competitions. And so we just competed, and we competed, and we got better, and we got better, and we started... Um, you know, we started doing really well. You know, you know, we weren't doing, you know, we weren't traveling around beating like the top teams or anything, but you know, we were doing good enough. And then um, this place that we're in, this location, was a barbecue restaurant beforehand, and I got to know the family pretty well. And they just decided one day that it, you know they had other priorities, and so I, I said, hey, let, you know, let me just take it over, and the rest is history. You know, it wasn't anything that we thought we were going to do. Uh, you know, we wanted to do it, but. You know, it's such a pipe dream, but, you know, we worked really hard at it. It was our whole life, so we put everything into it, all of our time, you know, money, priority, everything. We put it all into this, and we, we, we made it happen. And then, you know, the first year was really, really tough, and it is in Vegas. I, mean, I don't know the exact statistic, but I know that the failure rate in Vegas for a lot of restaurants in the first year is pretty high. And um, we, were, we, were, we were right there, you know, but... You know, we made the proper adjustments, we put the proper time we needed into it, and uh, we got to the second year and everything shot up out of nowhere, you know? So and a lot of that had to do with, um, with our social media prowess, um, as, good as, it, as good as it can be, you know? There's always room for improvement, but you know, we have, we have, a, decent, we have a decent reach for a, a very diverse crowd of people, people and, and, you know, all over the, Pretty much everywhere, you know, you can, you can reach anywhere and anybody in face, in face, on Facebook or Instagram, anywhere all over the world. Whether you live here in Las Vegas and listen on our flagship KSHP, or you're coming from all over the country, you have to make this a must-go-to. It's fantastic barbecue, really among the very best I've ever had. So let's tell people where they can go. Um, so behind Mandalay Bay, and even closer now, we're behind the Raiders Stadium. So, you know, it's you could definitely walk to the Raider Stadium from here. So uh, 5611 South Valley View Boulevard, Las Vegas, Nevada, 89118. Russell and the website? JesseRaysBarbecue.com, and then Twitter and Instagram and Facebook at JesseRaysBarbecue. J-E-S-S-I-E-R-A-E-S, BBQ. Time now for our last edition of Wine World with America's first master sommelier, Eddie Osterlin. Today's topic, the right way to go wine tasting. A lot of people 
love to go out to wineries. I mean, that's a fun thing now, whether it's a place like Napa, which is world famous, or even some of the smaller areas around like that are regionally uh, in Nevada. It might be out in Pahrump, different places. What do you recommend for somebody that wants to go wine tasting? What's the smart way? What's the eddy way to go wine tasting? Well, the eddy way, first of all, says you need to get a chauffeur. You need to get the service of someone who's going to pick you up and drive you around so that you don't risk uh, drinking and driving. Uh, nowadays, with uh, Uber and Lyft so inexpensively, that may be one way. But a lot of these wineries uh, or wine regions have uh, people who do, you know, do the tours. And, you know, you don't want to try to do too many wineries. Um, you know, you're not, I mean, I, I agree a lot of people are out there to kind of get a buzz. But uh, if you're really serious and you, you start to like wine, you know, you've got to limit yourself and, and say, maybe I'm going to visit maybe only four wineries or three wineries and do it right. Spend a full hour there and have someone receiving you. You know, preferably don't go there on the weekend when it's just jam-packed with people who are just trying to get, get high on wine. And, um, you know, always call ahead and make a reservation. Don't just drop in on somebody because then you're just, it's a cattle call. Um, you know, you want to stand out. You want to be taken good care of. So gradually, uh, whether you meet a winery owner or, or a winemaker or something like that, you want to try to bond with them and have them set up a visit for you so that, the, you know, so that when you tour that winery, you know, you're probably going to, you might even decide to join their wine club. Um, I will say this something, though, um, and that is when you're, <laughs> this is one of the things my professors told us all, in Bordeaux, when you're at the winery and it's the third winery or the fourth winery of the day and you're down in the wine cellar and the candles are flickering and the music's playing and you're on vacation, uh, don't buy a case of wine at that moment. Buy a bottle of it and take it home. And if you really, really think it's as good as you do that day, then you buy a case from home and you'll find that you won't make the mistake that so many people have when they get their wine that they ship from, the, from their vacation in Napa Valley and the wife looks at the husband and it goes, is this the same stuff we had back there? I'm not as impressed with it. You know, it's, it's just one of those things. So, you know, you got to plan your visit rather than drop in. And uh, the degree to which you get to know the right people is the degree to which you will, you know, benefit from learning something about that wine. Next week, this segment will expand into an in-depth weekly look at the good life in Las Vegas. That means fine wines, wonderful cocktails, and gourmet meals. And to kick it off, you'll meet Matt Leos, the former sommelier at Delmonico's and owner of Bird Dog Wine Broker. Matt will be part of this new segment, and he'll be a featured guest next week. Thanks for listening. Please follow us on all the social media platforms, including Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Have a great weekend. This is Stephen Maggi reminding you, Vegas never sleeps. Las Vegas, here we go! <laughs>